Welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. Today, in the first of a two-part podcast, Janie Shoemaker and Bridget Flood speak with Johnny Boucher, the founder of Hope for the Day, who through his coffee shop, Sip for the Day, in Chicago's Logan Square, has been letting others know that it's okay not to be okay, one cup, one conversation at a time. Now over to Bridget Flood, who will get an insight from Johnny on what the phrase, it's okay not to be okay, truly means, and how he and his organization, Hope for the Day, is changing the way we deal with mental illness and suicide prevention. Hello, and welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. I'm Bridget Flood, Director of Strategy and Operations at BCN, and I'm joined by my co-host, Janie Shoemaker, Executive Director. Hey, Janie. Hi, Bridget. Um, The BCN and Friends podcast is where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a wide range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals. But most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always valuable. So Jamie, our guest today is Jonathan Boucher. Johnny is truly a cool guy with a cool purpose. At a very early age of 13 years old, he got involved in the music industry by putting on punk metal shows in order to create um, community spaces where people felt that they could belong. And fast forward to today, Johnny is the CEO and founder of Hope for the Day, which is a nonprofit movement empowering the conversation on suicide prevention and mental health education. His purpose and vision is to lead the global conversation on proactive prevention in order to create a cultural shift on how we approach mental health in our communities. What happened in 2010 was a catalyst moment. Johnny's boss and mentor, Mike Scanlon, a music festival promoter, committed suicide. He was the ninth person Johnny personally knew to have passed this way. And for Johnny, this was a final strong moment and what finally pushed him to take action. Hope for the Day was created as a way to honor not only Mike, but all the friends and family members who have died by suicide. And in addition to all the good works that Hope for the Day provides, they've also started a Sip of Hope. Sip of Hope is the world's first coffee shop where 100% of the proceeds support proactive suicide prevention and mental health education. His coffee shop is a perfect space for breaking that silence and having the conversation. Johnny and his team want to create a world where everyone understands it's okay not to be okay. And I absolutely love that line. So Johnny, welcome. We are so thrilled to have you today. Thanks for having me. Uh, good morning and, and uh, good day, you know. Yeah, Pleasure absolutely. to be here. Absolutely. So I hope I did you proud with that introduction. Um, that was fantastic. Great. Um, but we're going to get a little more into it. And where I'd like to start is your journey. Um, you know, your journey getting to Hope of the Day and your journey at the Hope of the Day, if, you, if we couldn't start there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love sharing that. Um, I was born in Peoria, Illinois, and my parents quickly moved up to the 
Northwest Chicago suburbs, um, you know, at the age of one. Uh, so I, I don't really remember that. But <clears throat> the uh, thing that my family always really, really pushed was uh, community and family. Um, my mom came from northern Wisconsin. My dad came from Peoria, both from very big families, both dysfunctional families. My parents love to say that they put the fun in dysfunctional. <laughs> uh, they have that literally when you walk in their house. Uh, but growing up, you know, my um, my dad's family, uh, you know, I felt was really diverse because uh, French and Filipino was, was what was going on in my dad's house. My grandmother was uh, from Manila and she met my grandfather when he was on break from war and <clears throat> really uh, stirred the pot when he came back to Lawrenceburg, Tennessee with a Filipino wife and a, you know, very, very predominant um, white American family. And that was kind of like the start of embracing community for the Bouchers. Fast forward to me being born and raised in a very diverse community. A lot of my dad's friends were black. Um, a lot of my mom's family were very open with their struggles. And we always just felt like we had a revolving door when it came to the people that were part of our sphere of influence, our community. And my parents really, really embodied this mentality that we can talk about the good things, we could talk about the bad things. And that if somebody needs help, we got we to gotta talk up, you know, about it so we can all help address those things. Because um, my, both my parents uh, are very well versed and, and uh, experienced when it comes to um, having friends, having many different hardships and them having to lean in and help. Because um, that's part of what they always felt that they had to do. So when I was... 13, I wanted to really uh, develop my own sense of community. So I started booking punk rock shows and in, in, in the Chicagoland area. And what started in some friends' basements and backyards, which eventually led to Knights of Columbus Halls being rented out and then going to real big venues all the way to the city of Chicago, where we were doing shows um, for, you know, anywhere from a thousand people to 4,000 people uh, a night. And it was just so much fun because we were bringing people together for that sense of community that music really allows us to do. When we go to a show, we connect with people we maybe have never met before, but we have one thing in common. We love music. But the more that we talk about things, the more that we realize we have in common. And the more that I put on shows as I was going through high school and then eventually into college, the more doors I opened and the more people I was exposed uh, from around the country and around the world. And as we know, the more doors we open, the more tragedy we see too. Um, in those communities. And so when I started working with my boss, Mike, we were doing predominantly Christian and adult contemporary shows, which I'm not a really religious person. Um, I believe religion is, is a very individual journey um, that allows us to live through. And um, I know some people are believers and some people aren't believers. I like to build tables and chairs uh, and allow people to have a seat at the table. So, you know, I'm, I'm a I, I guess you could say what we do is the Lord's work. We work with the sinners and the saints, if you will, at Hope for the Day. Um, but it's because my mentality has always been community focused. And just because maybe I didn't care for some of the music that we were putting on when I was working for Mike, the sense of community and that value that it brings on the days that we don't have the concerts and we don't have the good fun events is, is really important because that's where we see our backbone of support comes from. But in 2010, 
uh, I was actually down in Mexico with my father working on a, a project, a passion project of tequila with, that we were working on. And I got a phone call from uh, one of my coworkers, Shane, dear friend of mine. And he said, hey, man, I got to talk to you. And I said, what's up? He's like, um, I don't know how to say this other than just being honest with you. Um, Mike jumped off his fifth floor balcony in Chicago. And I was in Portsuelo, Mexico, which is a very, very small, small uh, town. And um, I had all the air and the oxygen ripped from my lungs, my heart. That believed in me in a way in the sense of, you know, working in the music industry where when you're putting on festivals with 40, 50,000 people and I'm in charge of uh, over a hundred thousand dollar marketing budget to make sure everyone gets there. Um, you know, there's empowerment there and there's also responsibility and, and what that made me really drive towards was wanting to become like Mike one day, like we were all told to be like Mike, whether it's Michael Jordan or it was Mike Scanlon, I feel. And Mike Scanlon taught me a lot in the music industry. Um, he taught me a lot about life and I feel like I had the opportunity to talk to him and, and, and teach him about some things in life. Cause Mike was, um, he struggled, but he was open with his struggles. And he didn't struggle from a mental health perspective. He struggled from a vice perspective. He, was, he had a bad relationship with alcohol, cocaine. He was very promiscuous. And one day, as a staff member of his, I was very honest with him that I felt like he was making some bad decisions that eventually would catch up with him. And he, and he, tamed, and he, he, he tamed his act for a while, and, and he hungered down. He got married. He had a baby. Um, but I didn't know all the things that I found out after Mike had took, took his life, what he was really battling. And it showed me, oh, wow, this is a huge issue. And not just because we lost somebody, but the amount of things that he had put himself into, the amount of debt that he had put him in, into, it, it was, it was mind boggling. And knowing that he was trying to handle it all alone, it made sense then why Mike struggled and why his vices became his burdens. And eventually he felt the need to, um, you know, leave this earth too early. Um, but that day changed my life entirely because I couldn't do anything to help. I had to sit in Portosuelo, Mexico. I had to let myself cry. I had to let myself feel these feelings. I had to go talk to my dad. And then after that, I had to try to put together a marketing uh, meeting yeah. together to try to get a $15 million deal for this tequila company that also that same day uh, did not go through. And I thought, wow, what, how much worse could this day be? Right. And so I did, I did what anyone would do. I drank all the tequila around me. <laughs> and uh, it was good tequila because I didn't wake up with a hangover the next day. The next day I actually woke up very ambitious and I told my dad I wanted to leave Mexico a day early. And he said that I, he felt that I needed to go sit out on the patio and just have some time for myself. Uh, I did. And I accidentally locked myself on that patio for four hours until someone was able to come back and get a key that could open up the door so I can get back safely in the house. So needless to say, I had a lot of time to think about that while also craving, um, you know, water and nourishment because I had drank my weight and, and many others weight in uh, tequila the night prior to take care of some of my pain. Um, but I, I had a clear vision that I wanted to change what I was doing with my life. And I was, you know, young, I was, I was 24 years old. I had just uh, graduated college and I felt like I could go do whatever I want. And I challenged myself to think, what is my footprint? What is my footprint in this world and what can I do? And so I got back to Chicago. I started writing on a piece of paper, how many people I had lost to suicide 
and Mike is number nine on, on that list of 16, which is just, uh, it's, it's like having a very bad golf swing, you know, that you never want to talk about yet. Uh, you gotta, you gotta do something with it to improve the situation. And so I decided that, you know, I wanted to start an organization to help people talk about these things. Cause the one thing that I started to realize in my deep dive on how mental health had impacted me was the fact that everyone who I'd lost didn't want to talk about it. They masked it with certain things. And so I was like, well, we need to start this conversation and we need to build bridges to people to get resources. And it automatically, um, you know, energized me every single day to the point where I left the music industry. I stopped doing artist management. I stopped doing concerts. I took all the money that I had made and I put it in a bank account. And every month I just chipped away at my bills and I, I didn't complain about it. I decided that day forward that I was going to change what I was doing, what my output was. And I wanted my ROI to no longer serve others nor my own personal pocket. I wanted it to, to really be something that served the community that needed to hear a message that it's okay not to be okay. And from there, it was just, how do we start the conversation? And so 2011, when we, when we became, became a 501c3, it was green light go, research and development, finding out where our place was because the, we are part of the mental health community. We're not the only shop in town, nor in this country. But I realized that within that world of growing this organization that I couldn't just, you know, worry about Chicago. I couldn't just worry about the state of Illinois. Mental health is a global conversation. And if we think about it, it is, it has been in the same deep, dark corner that cancer, HIV, all these other diseases that, you know, mental health sits within, you know, we, they sit there until we pull them out of that closet, um, which allows us to really unmask the reality behind what's really going on. Um, but for me, I just felt like if I could be a part of the puzzle, not the entire puzzle, that together we could build the puzzle for, you know, people in, in Chicago, people in Illinois, people across America, and eventually be able to, you know, be, be a contributor to this message going on around the world. Um, and in 2014, we started doing outreach nationwide. We started doing outreach in Europe. And then we just started copying and pasting every year to where we added on Australia. We added on more regions and territory within the UK and in Europe. Um, we added on places uh, in Africa where we were going to do our work. Because it doesn't matter where we go, we're talking to human beings. And that's the biggest thing is that as scary as this conversation is, we're all experiencing life. And mental health isn't just the bad days, it's the good days too. And the biggest issue that I saw was that no one knows how to talk about mental health. So we decided to empower and embark on our own education model that is clinically backed and peer led, but it allows us to not just go in and wave this flag. It allows us to go in, wave this flag, put out the resources that are available in that community, show the resources that are available in this country because we all have friends and family that are all going through things. Uh, but also then put the next step, how to have the conversation, educate people, because in a world where stigma rules everything around us, I need to you know, under, uh, let others understand that we've neglected this conversation, but here's the conversation, here's a digestible version. It's not, 
if you're depressed, call this number. It's this is what good days and bad days look like. This is what self-care looks like. Because then we can get to a better baseline of understanding what depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, PTSD, all look like in reality, instead of just reading it from a book and coming up with our own assumptions. And that also is, is there to say that by doing all this, we're inviting people to the table to share their experience. Because that's more important than reading out of a book these days. It's how yeah, you all get through it. That's what I love about what you're doing. It's not, you know, here's a phone number. If you're experiencing these things, call. It is people are getting involved with each other, which I think is just truly amazing, Jen. Absolutely. We need people. We need people in this world. Even on the days where we are like, maybe I'm more introverted than extroverted. It's like, well, you know, we all need us time. Uh, but at the same time, we all need people. And, and, and people come into our lives for very, very different reasons, specific reasons. But sometimes we don't know why until years down the road when you get a phone call from someone saying, hey, I'm having a rough day. Can I talk to you? Or you're on the other side of that coin and you're having a rough day and you feel that, you know, the only person you can talk to is maybe someone who at one point in time shared their experience about you know, being impacted. And, and yeah. my, my story has two sides of it, you know, being impacted and losing people, but then also being diagnosed with PTSD in 2018, I had to challenge myself to also face the same issues that we fight against. Stigma, being a man and, and, and not feeling welcome to talk about it. I had, to, I had to dismantle my own stigmas in my own life to go ask for the help because I didn't serve this country, you know, and from, you know, from a military perspective. People say that I, I, I serve the country in many different ways, um, but I haven't stepped up to the plate like a lot of our, our men and women individuals who have, have gone to fight for this country, who traditionally, because, you know, stigma tells us what is reality, right? Like, that's, that's BS. Like, but we are, you know, I, I drive into the city um, every day and I see this billboard that says, you know, we are fighting against the fight against PTSD for the military. And it's like, well, there's many people in the world that are, 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 you know, either walking around diagnosed or undiagnosed with PTSD because that's trauma. That's not just something you get for putting on, you know, a uniform and going fighting on the front lines for this country. There's many different things, but I at the same time felt like, well, I'm not, you know, at a place where I can say that I've done something so courageous as like serving my community. So I, I'm, I'm not the same when in reality, like me, being an individual who has, you know, has a diagnosis of PTSD and maybe a veteran who has PTSD, we have something in common, but we have individual unique stories and, right. and how we got to that journey. Right. And that's important. That's important that we honor that too. Yes, I think this story is really important. I want to um, shift this uh, dialogue just a little slightly to the right or the left, I'm not sure which, but um, you know, we talk about these dialogues with our friends and family. We want to talk about the workplace and what that means in the workplace when typically we're all, you know, trying to be nice and correct. And what does that dialogue um, look like for you? Or what advice would you give us in our workplaces? Yeah. Well, you know, for the workplace, it's really important that <clears throat> if you are someone who is living with um, you know, a, a mental health illness or, or, or challenged with one, um, that you're open and honest with your colleagues about that so we can all be help, uh, helpful in your success if you do experience something while being at work, right? But at the same time, that also normalizes it for others who might be struggling 
and and then from there you're able to build better pathways and resources to you know what hr and what your company uh, you know provides for you um versus also what's available in your community just because again there's a stigma about going to hr and asking for help or calling your eap number which is all bs we we we, we know it, you know very well because one of our uh, many education programs uh, is there is one that's focused on workplace mental health and what it looks like from a corporate standpoint, from a small business standpoint too, because we are all working so hard right now, even more than ever and pivoting and being at, being from home, right? Like, you know, some of us might have to become teachers now for our kids when we thought there was other people in this world to do that. Right. Um, but it's all about being able being able to understand that uh, you you're 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 hopefully working for a company who embraces the culture that allows you to talk freely and won't use it against you. Uh, but we also recognize that sadly that is a not the reality for a lot of people, <clears throat> and that you know it's going to take time. But we're in a place now more than ever for time to to allow that allow those conversations, especially in 2020 where. You, you know, if it was a movie, it would be called, no, we're going to talk about this. And so I feel that when we are able to have constructive conversations about what's going on, whether it's in our, our homes or in our workplace, we're able to open up opportunities for growth and, 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 and team building if you're in an office just by being open with how you feel. Yeah. And, and being that one who is courageous. And, and that's what we really aim for with our education is that you're able to look on how you're taking care of yourself and then how you can take care of others. Because we got to also realize that <clears throat> we as human beings are stretched thin right now. We're all going through like the, the digital, uh, you know, social media death scroll every day just to kind of like avoid maybe work or, or just, you know, whatever's going on because we're, we're built in this digital age. And, and, and it's important that um, we, we do take time for ourselves, uh, productive time. And, and that's where we really dive in with like self-care and what those tools look like. Because if those tools aren't working, then we can go to the next step of saying, well, this is how you, you talk to a counselor or a therapist. But we need to get to a baseline in society. And it's so important that our workplaces really empower this conversation um, because it's, uh, it's, it's horrible when you lose someone to suicide. Um, but also at the same time, when it comes to the workplace, we also have data that allows us to build a, a need that shows also the people that are just focusing on the, uh, a P&L uh, on how the company's doing, what the financial impact looks like if one of your staff do take their life, unfortunately. Thank you for that. Um, so one of the things, you know, it's all about the converse, having the conversation, which is important. And when I read, you know, it's okay to not be okay, I, re I originally read that as if I feel not being okay is normal, <clears throat> then I'm probably going to talk about it. Right. You tend not to want to talk about things that you don't feel are normal. And is that your understanding of what you mean by it's okay not to be okay? Yeah, 100%. So we are, you know, we're the ones who are like the origin of where that saying came from. Um, and it's because I, I wanted, you know, our theory of meeting people where they're at now we're expecting me. You think about it, my background in marketing, um, I would never put if you're depressed, come talk to us. Um, we need to like throw this out there. And it's like these little things because what we have found with it's okay not to be okay 
is that people interact with that message so different and individually all the time. And that's beautiful. It's kind of like what Dave Grohl said when, when Foo Fighters played Wembley Stadium for the first time, he sang out to 88,000 people and they sing back for 88,000 different reasons. And that's the glory that we get with It's Okay Not to Be Okay. When we do outreach with our partners at Live Nation out at many of their concert uh, and festival grounds, people will see our tent from far away because we are good at what we do. But it's to get them there, not to come and make a donation. It's to come have a conversation. And that conversation can be about, wow, I'm struggling. You know, you guys got some resources. Yes, we do. Wow, I have a friend who's struggling. Do you have some resources? Yes, we do. One more. We have education opportunities. We're also just there to be an ear to bend because why do people show up at concerts, right? To go get, get away from life. We can do that by being present, but support them. So when they hear that next song or they hear that track that they, they went and saw that artist or they just are having a bad day, they're like, oh, wait, what was, what was that tent? Hope for the day they said it's okay not to be okay. And then they can Google it, right? The power of technology then becomes helpful to this. And that's really where we, we, we get to shine is just by simply meeting people where they're at, not where you expect them to be. And our work proves that. That's why we are in the coffee business. We work with craft breweries all around the country. We work with different lifestyle avenues to get in front of people, to meet them where they're at. Because sure, alcohol is a depressant, but my uncle drank himself to death. He's one of you know those 16 people. I would rather go work with the liquor industry to talk more to people that were just like my uncle, maybe by, maybe by way of their product um, or, or something strategically like that, where we still invite them to have a conversation, but we don't punish them for maybe having alcohol be what they're leaning on right now. Um, it's the same thing with people who maybe have eating disorders um, who either are on, you know, both sides of that coin, you know, like we, we need to understand that we can meet people where they're at and invite them to feel welcome. Because if not, all we're going to get is people feeling like they're a stray animal and getting pushed into a corner. And that is not healthy for their success if they are experiencing some mental health issues. You know, that's amazing because I think what you're doing is meeting them where they're at, not them trying to have to find help. And so your community outreach is, um, is I think, innovative and truly awesome. Um, and I'm still hoping to get to the sip of hope because it's around the corner for me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast with Johnny Boucher. It is so interesting that he found through his loss and pain a way he could truly make a difference in this unpredictable world we live today. Join us next time where we'll speak with Johnny about how we can support one another through these trying times.